You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. So on this episode of Another Name for Everything, here we are, season five, rounding toward the end, the farewell. Um, We had a conversation about the third and final rung of this cosmic egg that Richard likes to teach. Uh, Today we talked about the story. But Paul, one of the things that I found so precious, (laughs) tender, and moving is that you and I both had experiences this week that left us in this very tender-hearted, vulnerable place. And maybe because of that, we were able to have a conversation about the story that was th- like through the lens of love. It wasn't up here in the mind. We weren't talking at it like a map maker. We were talking about it from the heart. And it was so um, it was so special to be able to be in that space together. Amen. It, it, it almost feels like there's potential that listeners could hear our beating hearts through this episode because <laughs> we were both holding kind of our own spaces of tenderness and um, allowing that to to be a place that we can sit with and also do this kind of work from a place of tenderness and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And even Richard was dropping into that heart-centered space with us. And you said something beautiful. I, I, what was it that you just said? You said it was like the way he was teaching. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking as like, he was speaking from this place of his mystical heart. Mm. And it was like the right posture mm. was was allowing the pouring through of right teaching. Mm. And I think that that really resonates as we dive into the depths of uh, what we've been calling the story or the patterns that we see happening everywhere. You know, we talk about Black Elk and Einstein and art and creativity and becoming and process theology. Like, I can't even wrap my head around all the areas that that Richard touched on that we covered as these very inspirational points of what does it mean to unfold? What does it mean to become in this human life? Yeah, and the, the radical humility that these different perspectives can offer us if we are all becoming, if the story mm. isn't finished, if the my is nested in a healthy R that's nested in something greater that keeps it all in check, then it's like, man, this adventure of becoming is no longer something we need to brace against with fear and frustration and reactivity, but rather something we can surrender into with creativity, with hope, with love and awe and wonder, you know? I mean, that's some good news. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And to put those words together too, it it just really enlivens me. Like we're surrendering to the adventure of our life. Yeah. And like that just, you know, sign me up and I know it takes courage and it there's there's edges that I'll meet in harshness, but but this is the juice. This is this is the life of full participation in God. Yeah. I cannot think of a better way to wrap up the cosmic egg than with mm. this message of the adventure of our becoming. So with that, we hope that you'll enjoy and sink in deeply to this episode of Another Name for Everything. So, welcome back, everyone, to Another Name for Everything. Um, it's been a great journey so far as we, uh, we've gone through kind of the overview of what the cosmic egg of meaning is. We dove into my story and our story. And here we are with the, the outer layer of the, of the nested egg of the story. And Richard, I was thinking as a way to begin that we could, you know, my story and our story are so personal. Is it, and I wonder if it's helpful to depersonalize 
the story. You know, I think about how my story and our story are, they're such personal and cultural perspectives, they can create a very, very tight container. Well, the story being something that's the patterns that are always true, its essence is, is palpable, but more effusive, like an ecosystem to me. How can one embrace this cosmic egg while not claiming personal authority over its contents? Wow. That shows real working with the material. Yeah, I, I think a person who has not done at least the beginnings of significant ego work that decenter themselves will have no understanding or no patience or no search for these story because they can't imagine it. Every story starts with them and really ends with them or at least with their group. Uh, and yet I'm going to speak on the opposite side now, quoting Teilhard. Teilhard says, the most personal is the most universal. <laughs> so if you go all the way through, which I don't think a large percentage do, you know, uh, it, it's personality, but not true self person. And so they get trapped on the level of personality. But if you go all the way through to true self, you start hitting upon the universal, the story, the story. And, and that's why Augustine and Teresa both say, you know, the soul, the human soul, is the perfect container for God, which is a quite amazing statement. And, uh, because what, why I say that is because a large percentage of religious people have still localized the agency uh, in an external way with no inner concomitant or participant or uh, they haven't achieved unitive consciousness between the soul and the universal truth. It both decenters my personality and its wounds and its whatever and absolutely centers it. And I know that sounds like gobbledygook, but it does. And I, I know my own dignity. I own my own power, know my own power, but I know it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> Can I say both of those? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a helpful way to think because, you know, I really, um, I resonate deeply with your distinction between personality and and personhood and i you know i've heard cynthia say personhood personare one through whom the whole resounds and so, and so there i think okay now i can kind of make sense out of what the healthy my is you know so long as the whole is resounding through the instrument of my life and my story so that i'm not centering my experience as the experience but rather i'm allowing the bigger cosmic meaning, this bigger participatory unfolding story um, to manifest in my unfolding story. There, there's humility, there's courage, there's participation, but it's not egocentric. <laughs> Excellent. You understand well. 
And I have to praise it because most don't. (laughs) Most don't. They still think it's about their personality being right or best or powerful. And you got to get beyond that. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I love that. For me, it's part of what's helpful for me about thinking of the story as an ecosystem where, um, you know, it's it's the the patterns that are that are always present. But I also can't love the entire planet if I don't love a, a place. You know, like I have to, mm. there has to be a particular place that I have to love, which is which is that gateway to see the connective tissue to the whole um, as uh, the as the persona that was just shared. But yeah, I just I I think the playfulness of metaphors for me is really helpful to try it on in different in different containers like that. And I know you both know that's a very Trinitarian way of understanding persona, the flowing through of a larger life, just the way one life flows through the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, I know that seems high level to a lot of people, but it becomes the ultimate template that keeps clarifying personhood and keeps clarifying unity and diversity. So thank you for understanding. Well, we've talked as well on this podcast so much um, about the importance of as uh, the importance of seeing this story as unfolding and unfinished. And, you know, we use words like ontology to talk about that. Like what, you know, the philosophy of what, what we're naming is the nature of being. And, um, you know, you started this podcast by talking about Teilhard. Um, and so within that frame, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. And yet people, you know, we, we find ourselves almost uncomfortable with this idea of, you know, process or evolution. And, you know, we have these notions of God being unchanging and in control. And um, so, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine, Tim Burnett, um, who knows a lot more about process theology than I do. And I was asking him, I was like, okay, so, 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 you know, if everything is unfolding, if if we are in this process of becoming together, how do we think of God? And he said, you know, Albert Whitehead has this definition of God that's so beautiful. He says, God is the harmony of every harmony. And as he was talking, Tim said to me, you know, every event in reality is both unique and part of the larger web of relationships. So, God is one way to talk about the cosmic story of all the smaller stories. You know, so Whitehead describes the big story is the adventure of the universe, which means we're all only ever becoming. It's kind of a never-ending story. Um, And I just thought that frame was so helpful for me because I I get a little bit, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of this this season, there's a natural and maybe healthy allergy a little bit to any kind of declarative, this is the story. Um, And there's something good about that because we need to remain humble. Um, And at least for me, I found that process, thinking about change, thinking about evolution, thinking about the story um, as the harmony of every harmony, that felt really good to me. I've never heard that phrase before, but I like it. You know, I remember when I studied modern philosophy, uh, we believers, so-called, dismissed Whitehead as an atheist and, uh, and because he didn't 
too quickly use the word God. If he ever used it, I'm not sure. I don't suppose he did. But we didn't realize uh, we ran there before we knew what we were talking about. And maybe that's all he was saying. When he's talking about the harmony of every harmony, that's a rather good description of God or the story, as you put it. So thank you for introducing that. We could almost uh, give that the, the name of this episode. Excellent. Uh, was there a question in there that I should respond to? No, Richard, I was just blabbering on about my own, <laughs> my own trying to reframe and think about, you know, how, how, to, how I can work with this. Because I think in some ways, you know, um, framing my story, our story, and the story as unfolding, as becoming, allows us to have humility and compassion, not just toward ourselves, but to where we get it wrong, to where we miss the mark, to where, you know, as human beings, you know, we, we, we don't do everything perfectly. In fact, often we don't. So there's something about the frame of, you know, thinking about the harmony of every harmony. So it's like, okay, we're, we're still working this out. We're still figuring it out together. The story isn't over it's unfolding, it's unfinished, and that allows me to feel a sense of agency, but also compassion. Good. Very good. Uh, I, I love that image of the harmony of harmonies. Um, and I also, if I were to flip that on the, the underbelly of other frameworks, I think about how much of the Christianity that I was raised in, God was in complete, absolute control. We were just kind of characters in a, in a story just kind of saying our lines, playing our parts. Um, and I, I wonder if it's if it's helpful to just point out uh, or to hear from you, Richard, what you think about what I see as kind of a fallacy of this kind of absolute control and how it, from my purview, it, it seems to dilute the, humili the humility of God in this harmony of God that we're talking about. How do you see uh, that phrase, God is in control? Mm. Wonderful statement of the, of the issue that has not really been dealt with, although, and I'm going to sound like a super Christian in saying this, I believe it was dealt with on the cross, where the image of God is one of absolute vulnerability. How could we have missed the point? <laughs> it's just, that's why the medieval said, crooks probat omnia, the cro cross proves everything. And again, it proves to be true that here we've had no trouble for 2,000 years beginning most of our liturgical prayers with Almighty God. And many ministers still do. But that's only half of the truth. And we have to balance that out with all vulnerable God. Uh, but let me try to explain it. Once God commits himself, herself, to relationality as his very being. The being of God is relationship. Then there have to be at least two uh, elements to relationship. And so the one element is not totally in charge, huh? in control, as you just put it. There has to be a giver and a receiver, one who tosses the ball, one who receives the ball. 
Now, once you're in that, you have a dynamic notion of, of God that is constantly changed by love, by relationship. And uh, you, don't, you can't have a, a static notion of God anymore. It's a God who is growing with us, whom the covenant love of the Bible says he has entered into an eternal love affair with what he has created, she has created. This is so good, and it only takes a, a couple steps to get clarified before that becomes clear. But um, it was just easier to speak of Almighty God, not because that, I don't know why we prefer that, when it created so many problems, the biggest of all being the problem of evil. Uh, well, if you're Almighty, how come the Holocaust? How come uh, children die? How come people starve to death? Huh? Uh, but once God is in the suffering, in the vulnerable, uh, we have a way through, and dare I say even, we have a way out of this tight box that, that can't be uh, sufficient for the questions of our heart. Uh, if you need to make me try to unpackage that more, I'll, I'll try. No, that, that's so helpful because I think, you know, you've said, Richard, um, that both progressive thinking and traditional thinking can be a way of avoiding that great surrender to God. And it strikes me that, you know, we're so uncomfortable with vulnerability being the same thing as leadership, that you can have vulnerable leadership, that you can have vulnerable strength, vulnerable power, um, that, it, you know, I, I'm aware of the ways in which we've used the story as a tool for domination, um, of, of wanting to subdue what we don't know or the mystery of what's unfolding. So, I, I wonder if, as a continuation of where you're at, you know, this unpacking of, of the story, what are the ways that we've used the story collectively in religion as a weapon for oppression, silence, violence, out of that fear of trusting that vulnerable strength? I, I like where you're going. Thank you. Uh, the first most obvious thing, maybe I said it last session, but it bears repeating, is most of history, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, confused our story for the story. That's it in a nutshell. And once we took, you know, German culture, our medieval culture, Catholic culture, as, as the same as the story, uh, we got in major trouble. And it explains the immense pushback we have today against there even being the story. It's been so misused uh, in most of history. So you can understand it's very unfortunate, but why people, you know the line, there are no meta-narratives. I refuse to enter into the conversation. There is no story that is always true. Now, insofar as that diminished or, 
are lessened or relativized our absolutizing of our story, it's good. But once it led us into nihilism, nihil is the word in Latin for nothingness, uh, we got into the trouble that we're in today. There is no basis for truth. In fact, you may not use the word truth. Uh, and I can be elected president while denying evident, obvious truth. Uh, I don't know how you build civilization, because what happens at that point is everybody is thrown back on their own individualism. If there's no meta-narrative, um, things like the hero's journey, things like the Paschal mystery, things that... Uh, say, you know, I can trust that anywhere all the time. It's true. I don't know how you create conversations with the Arab states or the African indigenous peoples. I don't know how you show respect for them until you recognize those elements of universality that they all have and kneel before them. Uh, St. Francis told us, now this is in the 13th century, which wasn't very common to talk this way, if at all. He said, if you find even a, a single piece of paper with a word of the Quran written on it, a sentence, kiss it and place it on the altar. 13th century, in the middle of the Crusades, he was willing to honor universal truth. But that shows the highest level of spiral dynamics, which we'd call the yellow and turquoise levels, which um, most don't get there. The, the most of that, the secular, sophisticated, educated, academic West is giving getting is to the green level. And um, it's creating a lot of problems when the green level thinks it's the turquoise level. And, yeah, I just discovered a whole bunch of YouTubes on that yesterday when I discovered there is a YouTube channel. <laughs> so if you don't know what I'm talking about with Spiral Dynamics, uh, it's on YouTube. I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, Richard, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I'm referencing YouTube, there's a thing called YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the slow one, not, oh, not so most of the people who are listening. Yeah. Before everyone rushes to YouTube to look it up. Um, Richard, <laughs> you, you've brought up St. Francis and just, and those who are true elders and the, these wisdom bearers that, that live in all three layers of the cosmic egg and what that looks like. Um, and, you know, I've heard you speak before about how it's not like you pass from one story to the next and then you land at the story, but it's all happening simultaneously. And, you know, thinking of Francis and others, you know, there's this art of contemplative leadership in that when one is able to hold that post within all three um, and, and, and live in that spiral. In what ways do you see contemplative circles thriving in this 
And where do you see needed growth to, to, to be in all three simultaneously? Boy, you ask good questions. Uh, well, I hate to be negative, <laughs> but uh, not entirely will I be. I do think a lot who call themselves contemplative imagine that they live their full life in the story. And far too often have not had understanding, patience, love of our story or the individual story. Uh, it's the person who can move almost effortlessly be between speaking of God and caring for this little distracting person in front of me uh, and can honor the things of culture, doesn't feel they're being secular because they're going to a concert or an art museum. That's our story. It enriches your understanding of my story. And if it's good art and good music, without doubt, it will confirm and appoint, uh, point to the story. So I'm afraid uh, there's, there's still too much uh, false contemplation. I don't know what else to call it. People who think they dirty themselves by caring about the, uh, the poor Palestinians, for example. No, no, I don't have a time to get sullied by that political debate. Uh, whereas the true person who lives inside the cosmic egg has no worry of being sullied and in fact a natural compassion for those who are being oppressed. And uh, it's, it is just without any doubt the, the dance of dances, the art form of art forms, to know how to do both at the same time. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? 
Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash o-n-l-i-n-e dash e-d. We have this way of idolizing, you know, and we idolize teachers, we idolize institutions, we idolize ourselves for for thinking ourselves as living the the story, you know, or figuring out what the map is. And, you know, you brought up Ken Wilber a minute ago, and it's, you know, it strikes me that this is another area in which we have to have the humility of seeing ourselves in process um, and seeing our wisdom, our knowledge is being in process because while Ken offers us really beautiful, helpful tools and ways to think about reality, it's not the only tool in the shed. And, you know, we we need to have a humility toward recognizing that his tools are helpful, but they need to be harmonized with other tools, perspectives, voices, so that we don't fall into that trap of idolatry, you know, as you just mentioned. And so does Richard Rohr. Need he's one tool in the shed. <laughs> now, insofar oh, really as, he's, as he's communicating all three, when he touches upon that now and then, you can trust him. And that's it's a sign of your humility, Richard, that you're so quick to name that in yourself and insist that we see you that way. Um, but if I could, you know, kind of land us in that in that place of humility together, how? You know, what are the institutional pitfalls of believing ourselves the wielders of the story? So, even in our contemplative world and movement, um, what level of the cosmic egg do institutions tend to omit? And what hope is there um, for us to organize and maybe run the institutional side of serving our community better? Okay, another good one. Lord, give me wisdom. Uh, well, I'm going to repeat what I said before. What most institutions do, to again refer to spiral dynamics, is they stop at the blue level of tribal thinking of our story, and they absolutize that. You know, I was just reading uh, this week some of the writings by John Neinstadt of Black Elk, when I was in college, it was really in to read Black Elk Speaks. And uh, I want to say two things about her. First of all, everybody loved his clear green thinking, even though much of it was yellow and turquoise. This man was a, a native mystic. Um, but what isn't commonly known, and in fact, no, this isn't video, is it? I've got a new card on my um, hearth here of Black Elk teaching his granddaughter, and he's holding a rosary and a little tiny cross. It's <laughs> this was so unacceptable to people at the green level that all of the part of his biography... That tells that he was, forgive me, he was a Catholic catechist. 
uh, and especially to his own children and grandchildren. That just didn't fit the entrapment in our story. We really don't like mystics who, who well, we love him as long as he puts indigenous religions top and is a good green, but realizing he was more than green, that black elk said the rosary and taught catechism. <laughs> I mean, it's even shocking to me, a Catholic. Uh, and this would have been the last and previous centuries. Uh, this is quite amazing. So you see how both the left and the right don't like the story. Neither one of them. It all utterly assaults their arrogance that I've got the final explanation in uh, wherever I am. And I am it. Say moi. <laughs> How do we defeat that? Uh, well, we can't defeat it. God does. But we, we, here we get back to our notion of vulnerability. We have to live a vulnerable life where we allow our ego inflation to be punctured on a regular basis, a regular basis. And I don't know too many people who do that. I really don't. Most substitute my or our mm. for thee. Mm. And it, it's reminding me a little bit, as you just said that, puncture the ego inflation. <laughs> and I was thinking about the difference between being a creator and trying to enforce machinery. <laughs> you know, to to be a creator, or even I was trying to think like institutionally, what's the right posture? And I think if the posture is of creatives, then there's a softness and a constant listening, a constant reevaluation, a constant recognition that we are servants of the larger story flowing through us like instruments. So, this is not about us, right? It's not about our ideas of what we think we're going to go out and do in the world and accomplish and kick ass in and whatever. You know, so, but that's a very different posture institutionally than that of machinery of like, we're going to go, we're going to do, we're going to make, we're going to, you know, that, that kind of engine that just runs and pushes over um, and can squelch, that can squelch that kind of permeability of love that you're naming. Thank you. This brings to mind for me just the thoughts around, uh, you know, I think of institutions as trying to create a sense of, of order and uh, uh, momentum energy to serve the world. And I think about in, in Jewish scriptures, right, the themes of order and chaos is very much at play. And, you know, to fall into chaos is, is, is just nihilism, you know, to not try to have some sort of order to find your way through. And I know that we've talked many times on this podcast about the tragic absurdity of reality. Um, so I'm wondering, is Richard, do you have the sense that the wisdom of the story is leaning into the awkwardness of the dance between order and chaos. And it, I, it feels awkward like a junior high dance that we only discover the depth dimension <laughs> by, by stepping into it, by going through it to find this depth dimension that will sustain the my story and our story, that it's going to feel awkward. How does that land with you? Brilliant beyond your years. See, that's exactly <laughs> it. If someone really has the story, it's going to be 
the inclusion of paradox, mystery, disorder, uh, the uncertainty principle, uh, black holes inside the explanation of order. And that's the trouble. Up to now, most order was too much mm. order. <laughs> most of the story was a Loctite, you know, explanation, what we would now call rationalism. It allows no wiggle room, no exceptions, no failure. The genius of the gospel, as I see Jesus teaching it, is the incorporation of chaos. Now we call it chaos theory. <laughs> uh, isn't that interesting? Inside of order. And uh, anybody who offers you the story, who does not have patience with exception, remember that phrase, the exception proves the rule. Excellent. That's what, that's it. Uh, but no one told re me as a little Catholic I could believe the ex exception proves the rule. No, follow the rule. So we, we ended up not being people of the gospel ourselves. But is there a way to affirm, really affirm, a cosmic order? And I got to add, which only God can fully know and understand. <laughs> and to affirm exception without making exception the new chaos or order, or, or disorder, I don't know which it is. And that's the period of history we're in right now. The, t the several groups who are each making their choice for one or the other. But uh, calmly and lovingly, reside inside of order. The mystics would say, you can't hold yourself there. You are held inside of cause the divine order. You can't figure it out. That's why faith was praised so much. While being quite patient with disorder. I remember as a deacon in Dayton, Ohio, when I, I got to do an urban plunge they were really in. I don't know if you use that ter term anymore. And live and work in the inner city. And I met these nuns who'd been working down there for years. And they didn't bat an eye <laughs> at uh, the stories of prostitutes and drug addicts and rape. And yeah, this is part of the deal. This is the tragic human situation, and this is where uh, we have learned the school of love. This is just so good. But I don't mind saying that almost all of those nuns that I worked with were at least middle-aged. The zealous young person just can't usually have a container to hold that much disorder. They want to purify it. They want to free themselves from it. They want to convert it by the five rules of, <laughs> what were they called? Uh, five, you, the little booklets you evangelicals used oh, to give out. Uh, are you talking about like the, the, the ways to salvation? I'm, I'm 
I'm, what did you say, Corey? The five tracks. Little tracks. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That gives a young person so much comfort, and I Mm -hmm. don't want to deny them that. Yeah, I had it. I had my catechism. (laughs) That zealotry, though, that you're talking about is. You know, and it and it's funny, I'm laughing because you're talking about middle age and I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm staring down a, a few more years till 40 here and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm only just beginning to taste that settling into not needing to know everything, dominate everything, have an answer for everything, that edge that's always pushing um, with a, with violence, if I may say so, like a, like an edge of like attack toward myself and all mystery. And, you know, it's, uh, (laughs) Richard, you have a lot of wisdom about this, but the, you know, the, the real beginnings of a second half of life emerging at a, in a chronological way, some of this is just part of being human, that we reach this point in our lives where we can relax our um, intensity at needing to know so that we can make space for unknowing to move us into love and humility. Um, I can feel that happening in my own life. <laughs> we don't know, we really don't, what a treasure we have. Uh, kings and prophets have longed to hear what you have heard and see what you have seen. But the reason most of our world cannot find peace uh, is because of this. They insist on one or the other, order or chaos. So I want to ask a question about the, the, the in-between path between order and chaos when we find ourselves in places of discernment in our own lives. You know, what, Richard, what do we discern with or against, you know, when our lives are in that tra- transitional place of, um, being remade, or our world is being remade, as it is all the time, but especially right now. Um, you've talked a lot on this episode about love, and in other episodes you've talked about the epistemology of love. Would you say that love becomes then the melody that we can tune the my, our, and the story to? And if so, what does that, what does that look like? Well, we just should increase your salary. of course that's it Uh, only love has the patience has the broad mindedness without being silly mindedness there is a lot of immature love that's silly mind that's not great mind Uh, and it always backfires so um yeah, you just named it. And, and the loving heart, first of all, will recognize non-love almost immediately. That's what we mean by reading souls, that, that you gain the gift in time of showing who gets it, all three levels, who can live there peacefully, and those who have all the right words But as uh, Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, it's a lesson memorized. That's all it is, is a lesson memorized. There's there's no integration 
between head, heart, body, gut, and um, the, the integration of head, heart, body, gut is called love, but in, not in a sentimental way. In, in fact, not even in a way that most people will always respect because you'll be partially critical from that place of love of their entrapment in my story or the story or what they think is what they think is the story. Uh, so don't don't think of soft love. Love is a harsh and dreadful thing, as Dorothy Day said, or no she, Dostoevsky, I think wasn't she quoting him? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. she was always yeah. quoting him. Yeah, she was quoting him. Love is a harsh and dreadful thing. Boy, any of you who've loved deeply, you know that it leads you to that kind of discernment, clarity. It doesn't, with a few, it'll make you more popular. With the masses, true love will make you less popular. Yeah. Thank you, Bree. I think about that that choice of love too in that um this this may feel out of left field but it, it, it came to mind as i i think i told both of you i lost a friend to covid last week and um yeah she had this remarkable presence of love and uh where she really saw with the eye of the heart and i think the first i want to just want to tell a quick story what the first time i met her um we had already had a mutual friend and uh, I didn't know that she knew that. And she came up to me and she said, I hear that your people are my people. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, then you are my people. And that immediate overwhelming sense of commitment to love, she, she chose to love me before she knew me. And, and that is such a rare posture, I think, to give another example of how someone shows up with that kind of... For a young person, she was fairly young, no, she 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 was she died older. She was an older. She was a mentor of mine, so she was a professor. Yeah, but yeah, just but to have that kind of love poured in, I think, speaks to what what you're saying that that intuition of like I'm I'm in good hands. This is a, this is isn't that lovely? Yeah. Um, and then to turn turn towards uh, some of the, the ways we can apply this to life, uh, I want to talk about prayer for a second. Um, so you know, I have. A toolkit of contemplative practices that help sustain my relationship with God, um, and there's the 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 sitting meditation, but then there's also the impromptu cries out to God of God, help me, I need you, and I also love prayers around the dinner table. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, Richard, how do you see the relationship between the cosmic egg and prayer? You know, I, I, and particularly within the story, how does prayer play? Uh, that kind of deep relational grounding role within the cosmic egg as a whole, and in particular in the story. The reason Paul can say twice, pray always, is because this is a, a way of being in the world where, first of all, you pierce the, uh, the, bound, the seeming boundary around my story. You do not allow yourself to be uh, center stage. Huh? 
it's it's like uh, Galileo's discovery that the Earth was not the center of the universe. We have to discover that we are not the center of any universe either. That is the first death to get you out of the centrality of my story. It's a filter through which you will read reality, but it's not the filter. Then you have to pass through another filter, another death, usually an even greater death to those who are your friends, your community, your family, those who support you, those who like you, your tribe, people who talk like you and you grew up with. Uh, it's, it's hard to risk uh, breaking that part of the egg yoke open. Uh, I told someone just two days ago, every person who goes on the whole journey, you have to go through one major betrayal, one major loss of people you thought their love was trustworthy or true or would always be there. And you don't have to predict it. It'll happen usually. You're lucky if it happens. Well, if there's someone to sustain you through it. And that's the cracking of the second boundary. But you realize how they're both painful. They both uh, demand a major letting go. And that's what prayer is. Now, once you stand, sit, or held inside all three, at the, uh, the, even just for a moment, you are praying. You're an instance of prayer. You are a mediator between God and your humanity, or all of humanity, I guess you could say. Now, we start that by, by piercing the clouds with words and with our intentions. Uh, eventually, we do it uh, beyond words, just by our desire and our uh, intentions again, but now they become much more purified, if that makes any sense, where my first intention is not, how will this make me look? Will this make me money? Will this gain me a promotion? Uh, and that's the whole middle of life, the falling away of those lesser motivations, those lesser intentions. So if you're not doing your work, I can tell you for sure, they will not fall away. You will, you will have all the outer coating of a prayerful person, but prayer is you using God, not God using you. Can you feel the absolute difference? Yeah. Thank you. That is, it is so beautiful because what you're saying and in, in declaring that we become and you said this i'm stunned by it richard an instance of prayer when we can embrace the heartbreaks of our lives as opportunities to let the light shine in you know that cohen line of like that's how the light gets through that's how the the story gets through 
It comes through the cracks of our own heartbreak if we have the courage to let the heartbreak happen and not identify or cling to it and declare it as the story. Or look for somebody to blame. Exactly. Yeah. And that's... That's the usual way of avoiding the heartbreak, blaming mm-hmm. someone else. Yeah. And, and if people we stay- who are still at the blaming stage will all follow you there. And which makes you only feel more righteous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the spiritual journey is is a thousand dyings. It really mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And yet I promise you, and you know it already, there's joy on the other side. Not darkness, but joy to have such freedom. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go with it, which is that you're describing a liberation. <laughs> Liberation from the stories that have been given to us, the labels that have been oppressing us, the ways in which we have been oppressing ourselves and others, and a release into the reality of our relational wholeness, Mm. which is what you've been describing all along, Richard, as the universal Christ. That is the story resounding in everything. You know, that is, that is, that is love. Um, manifesting in everything, if we have the courage to allow and see it and um, serve it. Thank you. And it does not demand that you are a member of the Christian religion. In fact, sometimes that will be an obstacle Mm. (laughs) to the universal Christ. Because you're overplaying our story, Mm. your tribal symbol, instead of using the tribal symbol as a universal symbol. Now, that's what the book of Revelation and Paul are doing when they call the Christ the Alpha and the Omega. That's a good metaphor to bring in. The Alpha and the Omega language is looking for the story. (laughs) He's looking for a cosmic truth. You know, this will interest you, Bree, because I know you're an artist. I was reading this week, did both of you uh, see in the news where about four years ago or so, they discovered this latest of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings called Salvator Mundi? No, didn't know that. Mm. Uh, oh, didn't know oh that. you didn't? No. Well, what's wrong with you? I just... <laughs> <laughs> where do you we look begin? it up, Salvator Mundi, that, that's uh, Latin... <laughs> which means the savior of the world. But what was very telling about it, and the most beautiful part of the painting, it, like a king, Jesus is holding an orb. But what people, after now five years of observing it, notice that it's not the orb of the world. It's an orb that's translucent. It's the orb of the universe. And that da Vinci could think this way in the 14th century. Wow. Uh, He's longing for the same thing. The Christ image as the Alpha and the Omega of the whole universe. Look it up. It's a quite beautiful picture. And once you see the depth of it, you say this might just be a da Vinci, who clearly was uh, a bit of a mystic. Maybe more than a bit. (laughs) A lot of people who are great inventors, like Einstein, great discoverers, 
uh, like uh, Da Vinci. They could never, oh, look at him on your wall. <laughs> I'm glad I mentioned it. Uh, they couldn't think in such big, the story, so naturally. And I'm told Einstein was quite friendly to people and to animals and took time with both of them, increasingly so as his life went on. So you know this man had put together the story with, the, mm. with my story. Mm. Good stuff, good That's stuff. The, okay, so what gonna, else? We're going to round it out. Um, we're going to encourage everyone to go check out that Da Vinci thing on YouTube. Uh, Salvatore <laughs> Mundi, Salvatore. savior of the world. Yeah. Okay. See and, the uh, and notice yeah. how you can look through the the globe and it's not the world yeah <laughs> well you two are a delight you just pull good things out of me at least okay. i hope they're good things i think this has been an incredibly rich we've covered a lot of ground and we just hope that the listeners uh, will let it kind of simmer and sit within them as they seek to apply this to their own life and lens in the world as they work with the cosmic egg mm -hmm. so thank you so much Richard, yes. for the time today Love you both. Love you too, Love Richard. you too, Richard. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.